bag is for everyone. And your background experiences and life history has value to the ag community and diversifying the ag community. You bring a different way of looking at agriculture and weed science and whatnot. And we need that. We need as many different voices to be heard. And we need as many different experiences to influence where we go as a discipline. Welcome to Beyond the Bench, the podcast where we delve into stories of scientists and their work. I'm your host, Madison Sankovitz, and I'm an entomology PhD candidate at University of California, Riverside. And today, co-hosting with me, I have Dr. Monique Rivera, an extension specialist here in the entomology department as well. So today on the podcast, we're excited to welcome Dr. Lynn Sosnowski, an assistant professor of weed ecology and management for specialty crop systems in the horticulture section of Cornell's School of Integrative Plant Science. One of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you, Lynn, is because we were on a grant panel together and you deliberately called me out and were like, hey, you don't know what you're talking about when it comes to weed science. And I was like, yes, I think you're absolutely right. Because remember, we were discussing a proposal and somebody was like, they should have a weed scientist on there. And then I immediately was like, well, what is the weed scientist going to contribute? So uh, this is, you know, I needed to be accountable also for the fact that I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to weed science. Um, you know, I've, I've always been working around, you know, as an entomologist, there's always a plant pathologist around, there's always a weed scientist around. And from the time I started working in this field, I have always thought that weed scientists have the absolute hardest job. Like that's the, that's hard mode compared to insects or even, uh, plant pathogens. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to admit that I only vaguely remember, uh, this scenario or situation, um, That that makes it even more funny, though, because for me, that was like a moment of, hey, reconciling with like, okay, you maybe don't know what you're talking about when it comes to what a weed scientist is going to do on a proposal. So um, I think I'm guilty as charged uh, with the normal thinking of, you know, spraying herbicides and you're getting rid of the the weeds. uh, And that's really the task there. But um, that's not exactly true. And so can we start off with you talking a little bit about what what the dynamic nature of weed science and that it's not just herbicides, what else is it and, and how can we holistically think about weed science? Oh my gosh. Okay. So, you know, this is one of my favorite questions because there is a, a common misconception that weed science is all about spray and pray, squirt and look, you know, that... <laughs> to the herbicides and how hard can it be? And, and yeah, I'm not going to deny that, that we, we don't, we do a lot of herbicide research. Um, herbicides are the predominant uh, cross crop protective chemical applied in crops throughout the United States. Weeds are in direct competition with crops and, and they need to be managed. So we, we do do a lot of herbicide work because herbicides work. They're optimized for the systems, but it goes beyond that. You know, we do a lot of work uh, investigating non-chemical weed control strategies, whether that be 
you know, new cultivation strategies, or I'm looking at electric weeders right now, or, you know, mulches and, 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 you know, crop rotation strategies to, to minimize, you know, weed competitiveness. So, you know, we do a lot of that work, but we're also, you know, just at, at the heart of it all, we're, we're botanists and ecologists. You know, we happen to be working in an agronomic system, but we're really trying to understand, you know, the species that we're dealing with, how they're growing, you know, how they're interacting in their community. So, yeah, we do look at herbicides, but it's, it's so much deeper than that. We really need to understand at a very fundamental level the biology and the ecology of the plants that are in direct competition with our crops. And I'd argue a lot of us are ecologists at heart. We just happen to be working in a, you know, in a, maybe a less glamorous system than, than, you know, other people might envision ecologists working in because we really have to understand the place weeds have in the agro environment. So uh, basically the ecology side of that would really be plant and landscape ecology, right? So do certain uh, species of weeds drive community dynamics? Meaning, you know, if you have one certain weed species there, can they either dominate or are there some weeds that tend to occur together frequently? Yeah, so, you know, there's always species that maybe have traits that are supported by, you know, a certain um, disturbance regime in an environment. And so you might see, you know, certain species, you know, cluster together uh, under certain conditions. So, so for instance, um, let, let's think about uh, a no-tillage environment, you know, where we don't have that really intense soil disturbance. So we tend to select for weeds that will, you know, thrive in, in that environment and they might share characteristics like perennial weeds, you know, they, they do well under low soil disturbance or very small seeded species like um, horse weeds and flea banes, you know, that kind of fall to the surface. They're very small. They don't have a lot of endosperm, so they can't emerge from really um, great depth. So they tend to do well in, you know, non-disturbed environments. So, yeah, you know, I think there, there's so much uh, about weeds and, and, you know, people don't think that they have these interactions, um, you know, with their environment and that weeds are, you know, working to, to shift the environment themselves. You know, very competitive, you know, weed species can, can you know, uh, eliminate other weed species from a system. Um, it's a dynamic, ridiculously dynamic environment, and weeds are really well adapted to these different levels of disturbance, and certain weeds will come up in certain instances, other weeds in others. And uh, the great things about weeds is they have some of them can have very long-lived seeds in the environment, so they can wait it out till their disturbance regime, you know, comes around. So you recently moved from California to New York, and do you see that there's really similar weed dynamics between the two, despite the major climatic differences? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting is that there are some species that are common here and common in California as well, you know, and, and those, you know, it's, it's been really interesting uh, understanding, you know, how, how similar and, and different these, these populations are and, and how 
they're interacting with, with different species that maybe aren't occurring in California or they weren't occurring in New York. So, you know, it's, it's, it would, it would take hours, but it's, it, I'm just getting to learn, you know, the, the similarities and the differences uh, among the environments with some, you know, very common species and, you know, looking different, acting slightly different, but being the same. It's, it's a, it's a wiggly answer there, you know, but it's, I, how about this? I'm still, I'm still pondering what I know and what I think I know about weeds and what I need to learn. Uh, more about New York and New York's environment and, and what that means for, you know, my knowledge and what I can offer and, and what I'm going to take forward in research. So how often do uh, people think that you study a different type of weed whenever you say you're a weed scientist, as in marijuana? <laughs> All the time. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. Good time. Um, yeah, you know, I, I'm on Twitter, and so people will follow me on Twitter, and, you know, because they'll see something. They're like, okay, okay. <laughs> about weed science, and then they get really, really, really disappointed, <laughs> actually interact with my content, which is not exciting. Um, but I think one of the funniest, one of the funniest things ever is we were, um, the California Weed Science Society was meeting in Santa Barbara, and the hotel we were at had a Starbucks. And of course, you know, we were all in line to, to get our morning coffee to, to hit our sessions. And um, it was just really fun listening to other conferences, other conference attendees from attendees from other conferences, not our own saying, did you see who's here? It's the California Weed Science Society <laughs> organized. Think they could do that. And I'm like, <laughs> Yep. You're going to be disappointed. <laughs> We're going to be really, really disappointed. <laughs> That's too funny. Um, so tell us about some of your current research projects. Like what's exciting in your research right now? So, yeah, I've got a, a few exciting projects um, and a, a few that I'm proposing. And, you know, I have my hopes on in the future. I think perhaps the most exciting one right now is working with uh, some cooperative extension colleagues and New York State IPM colleagues. We got a, a grant uh, to look at electrical weeders uh, for uh, late season weed control uh, in soybeans and in some small stature, especially crops like beets and cabbage and, and snap beans. And, and this is a really, really interesting tool. So. Uh, it, it's, it's exactly what you think it is. It's electrocuting weeds. And, you know, there were patents out in like that were um, approved in 1895. A gentleman put a patent out to, to create an electric weeder to control vegetation along uh, railroads. And, you know, there was so this technology has been around or the thought like we could we could just zap them and kill them. And in the 80s, there was a lot of work done with sugar beets. But as soon as we really started to see some of the recent rises in uh, the numbers of herbicide-resistant weeds, particularly glyphosate-resistant weeds, you know, this technology was like, hey, we should investigate this again. And now, uh, you know, there's several companies out there that have, you know, developed and have uh, tools that have been commercialized. 
and, and they're getting sold and they're getting used, but we just actually right now don't have a lot of modern data, you know, um, with these, these newer incarnations of, of electrical weeders. So we're studying that, you know, what are the characteristics of the weeds and the system and the environment that they're growing in, the soil moisture content, you know, how, how stressed the plants are, what types of weeds, how dense they are, how fast the equipment's running, what setting it's on, you know, how high the, the bar is above the, the canopy. So we have a project to just literally, you know, ferret through all of, of these different variables and try and determine what are the most important factors that are influencing success. And then so we can go back to the growers who are thinking about maybe buying this technology and saying, okay, you know what, here's a species it's going to work on here. It's going to be less effective. You know, if you want to make this the most, you know, optimized tool that you've got, here's the, the conditions it has to be used in. So we're super excited about that. Um, I, you know, I, I get excited when I see weeds in fields and I was just talking to a, to a beet person. He's like, man, I really hate it when happy weed scientists come out to my field because <laughs> I've done something wrong or something has gone wrong. But so I, I hate to get excited about weeds, particularly damage, economically damaging ones. But we have a, a few amaranths that are kind of expanding their range into New York, Palmer amaranth and water hemp. And I, I don't want the growers to deal with this. So part of my excitement about them is that I'm, I'm kind of at the, the forefront and I get to, to work really hard to try and prevent some of the problems that the South and the Midwest had with those species. So studying, you know, what kinds of resistance they have, their resistance mechanisms, and what are the tools that we have to, to manage them and you know, are, are we seeing some of these populations blowing up in, in certain areas opposed to others? And, and how are we moving them around? How did they get here in the state? And are we moving them around in, in the state, you know, locally or regionally? So I think, I think that's another, another exciting project I have. Like I said, I'm, I, I really hope to, to fend off some of the, the monstrous problems that we've seen in other areas you know, by, by early, early detection and early, you know, alleviation. So why do some herbicides uh, cause resistance in weeds? I'm familiar with these mechanisms for insects, but for weeds, this must be completely a different realm, I'm assuming. Well, so, so the one thing I kind of want to do with this question is I just, I actually just don't want to focus on the, on the herbicide because really this is kind of, this is a system, okay? This is an interaction between, you know, our cropping system and the weeds and the herbicides, you know, um, you know, part of the reason that we're, you know, we, we're, we're seeing this develop is, you know, obviously we're, you know, some, some of these products, um, you know, have like, say, maybe a single target site. And so we can see like these single gene changes that can happen, you know, quickly and that and that can and can uh, lead to resistance. But, you know, it's also a factor of some of these herbicides, we're using them over such large areas and in so many crops, you know, so you know, we're, we're putting a lot of selection pressure just through our use patterns. 
uh, on these products. And, and some of it is, is also due to the, the weeds themselves. You know, if you, if you're, if you try and think, well, why are some weeds resistant to others? You know, well, we're seeing a lot of resistance, like say maybe in the grasses and maybe in the asters. Well, we have a lot of asters and a lot of grass weeds, you know, those are big plant families. And so we have a lot of these potential species that can, you know, come into contact with these herbicides and, you know, it is, it's, it's, and, and I'm, I'm making this, this more complicated than it needs to be simply because it is a complicated scenario. It's not just, oh, it, the, the herbicide has this feature and we use it this much. Well, a herbicide may have this feature, but we're using it a lot. And, you know, we're using it in, in the absence of maybe other strategies, you know, that could, you know, mitigate the evolution of resistance. And we're, we're changing factors about how we put it. We're putting them out at lower rates than we should, you know. And then we just have, like I said, you know, so many weeds that are coming into contact with, with these herbicide products. So it's really kind of this really kind of spider web of factors that are influencing the development of resistance. And that's why I said, I kind of just don't want to focus on the herbicide because there are so many factors at play. And I, and I think maybe that's it. You know, sometimes we tell growers, um, don't, don't, okay, don't spray this one herbicide so much. And yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great thing, right? We don't want to overload, you know, our, our system with this one herbicide because we want to reduce the selection pressure. But it's not acceptable to go and just change that herbicide out and start using a different one. And we also have to understand that, you know, when we talked about weeds and being kind of, um, you know, uh, specialized for, you know, a, one system over another or favoring one system over another, Weeds respond to disturbances within the system. And, you know, if our use of tillage or our absence of tillage, we're going to select for a weed that likes that environment. You know, growers sometimes say, hey, you know, there's no weeds resistant to, to steel, you know, but, but that's not quite true. You know, we just maybe, yeah, we're putting cultivation into our system, but maybe now we're selecting for weeds that like really disturbed environments and have really short life cycles or weeds that are going to emerge after our cultivation events have, have finished. So whatever, you know, it's, 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 it's like my, I call it my law of weed science for every action that we put in a system, we have a reaction in the weed community that causes, you know, some species to, you know, to really favor those conditions. And I'll use California as an example. So, for instance, um, we, when we move processing tomatoes to drip irrigation, we we're thinking, hey, you know, this is a great, you know, a great tool for growing, you know, our, our tomatoes. Um, less water, right? There's, there's less soil, surface soil wetting. And so we actually saw less annual weeds in those systems because they don't have that, that, you know, that surface water and, you know, germinating from shallow depths and whatnot. But bindweed really likes that because bindweed has roots that are, you know, tens to 20 to 30 feet deep. And it doesn't need your surface irrigation. You know, it can, it can get it from the drip as well as your crop can. And so I you know, I believe that's one of the factors that kind of helps field bindweed, like really 
develop in, uh, you know, uh, some of the some of the annual cropping systems, you know, in the Central Valley. So that was a very, you know, good change, you know, for water conservation and for directing it towards the crop. But there was a weed adapted to it. So. Well, so this is kind of my thing with science is, is the actual hard mode of these three categories because it's just, it seems like it's a never ending process of management. Uh, there's never a, you know, okay, we got rid of the weeds. I guess there was that phenomenon with Roundup initially. Is that even true though? I know, you know, it's, it, I, I, I think, I, you know, we, you're right. We never get rid of weeds. You know, we, we, we can be better at them and managing them, but you know, we've never had that. Hey, we've eliminated weeds. We, we don't, we, we don't get there. Like I said, you know, these are really active organisms, maybe let, uh, more so than people might give them credit for. Um, and, you know, for, for some weed species that have seed that can persist in the soil for five, ten or more years, you know, they can, you know, there's that ability to wait out, you know, you know, you know, for that's a, that's, that's a survival mechanism to, you know, you know, allow species Even to persist. In, in natural areas, right? So if you're walking on a trail, the diversity of plants along that disturbed edge of the trail is always so much different than the sort of actual landscape. So, I mean, another thing I've been always obsessed with is the seed bank because it's just like this ominous, uh, do you really know what's going to grow next? You know, you can estimate, but it's this fascinating um, idea that plants for a very long time or just putting seeds into the environment and then when the conditions are right you will get germination so based on that how do you think climate change and maybe resulting weather pattern changes will potentially impact weeds and and weed management okay so yeah i i've, I've been thinking about this a lot you know there's there's um there there, there was a great paper and i can't remember and remember who, who wrote it, um, but you know they talked about different ways that weeds are going to respond to climate change, and one of them is going to be like a, a march, you know, northward, right? As as we as, as the planet warms, and you know there's going to be a movement of some species northward towards the poles, um, and then there's going to be changes in weeds, you know. Uh, you know, within their, their habitats themselves, you know, certain species within those habitats are, are going to be better suited. So there's going to be these local changes and, and who's dominant and whatnot. It was, it was, a, it was a great paper uh, and, and, and really food for thought. Um, you know, personally, I guess what I'm, you know, I'm, I'm anticipating is, is that we're going to have impacts on the species themselves. Right. Well, you know, there was already a, there were a couple papers out there that predicted Palmer amaranth, which is a desert annual weed uh, native to the southwest. is is It's already moving northward uh, in its, you know, its range and that it'll continue to move northward. Uh, we're seeing it in New York. Uh, on you know, Parts of Canada are seeing it. So, you know, I anticipate we're going to see this happening. We're going to see species like Palmer amaranth start moving northward. Uh, we're going to see with, I think, you know, rising temperature, we're going to see impacts on, on um, how well our herbicides perform 
You know, so for instance, rising temperature and maybe associated drought stress is going to, you know, kind of affect the vigor and the growth and the development of weeds. And that will influence, you know, how well systemic herbicides do or don't work. So there's going to be an impact on the, you know, herbicide performance. You know, um, Louis Siska, a, a, a weed scientist, you know, has, has done some work and has talked about, you know, some of these perennial weeds are going to put more below ground root growth as opposed to above ground shoot growth. And now, you know, how does that influence the dynamics and the ability of these species to persist and how difficult, you know, they're, they're already difficult to control. How much more difficult will they be to control, you know, under, you know, climate change scenarios? You know, another thing is, is if we can't, you know, rely on rainfall patterns, um, that's going to influence for, for growers who are maybe not in irrigated systems, you know, if they're going to be using pre-emergence herbicides, are they going to be able to, you know, rely on, on rainfall to get their pre-emergence herbicides activated? You know, what happens if you, you get the rainfall at the wrong time and you get the weeds up and, and then it goes dry and you can't get the, you know, the herbicides to perform, you know, pre or post when you need them. Like there, there are so many different combinations that are probably going to, to happen. And, you know, this is a thing that we're, we're starting to study, you know, how are these, you know, really important species going to, uh, you know, how are they going to behave and how are our, how well are our control mechanisms going to succeed? And, what do we have to do now, you know, in, in light of this, you know, if we're, if we're getting Delta, you know, a set of cards, you know, we've got to play them. Right. So, so what can we do to adapt our systems, you know, to make them more resilient and, you know, to make them more suppressive. Um, and I, I think, you know, if there was ever a need for really understanding systems approaches to weed control, you know, it's really now. So I think from the consumer side of things, everyone's really pushing for less herbicides being used because people don't like chemicals anywhere surrounding their food, whether or not they like really know about them or what's going on there. I mean, looking forward to the future, this is a really far reaching question, but like, do you think it's possible to ever uh, sort of really drastically reduce the use of herbicides um, in agriculture to, I don't know, get close to like other alternative methods where we don't have to use herbicides at all? Or is that a completely unreasonable idea, especially with climate change? Yeah, you know what, I guess, you know, my thought is, is, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, anything is possible, but you know, what, what, what's realistically possible, you know, do I think herbicides are, are going away? No, you know, I, I don't think that we're going to have this, this mass, you know, elimination of, of herbicide products from our production environments. Um, but, you know, we, we, have, uh, we do have issues with herbicide performance for a lot of different reasons. Herbicides aren't perfect. You know, they, they might be a very optimized technology, but they're not a perfect technology. You know, resistance has shown us that, right? Um, you know, and, the, and there's a lot of different, you know, environmental scenarios that are going to affect herbicide performance. So I think there's always going to be a place for chemical tools. But yeah, you know, I think there, there, there is so much potential for lots of other tools and strategies to come into place, whether it's in 
you know, an electric weeder, whether it's, you know, a robotic, you know, vision guided, um, you know, cultivators, whether it's, you know, new cropping rotations or intercropping or mulch strategies. Like, I, I, you know, I think all of that has the potential, you know, to, to, to really rise up and to, you know, to really become more, more integrated and, and adopted. And, and there's lots of us studying, you know, these, these alternate strategies. Um, I think the, the problem is, is that, you know, there's probably a way, you know, to control all, there's a way to control all the weeds. We just can't afford to do it, you know, because it's, it's expensive, right? You know, like, yeah, you know, I could get every weed out of my field if I want to spray and want to cultivate and I, I want to send a hand crew through and I want to do this and that. But does, you know, the commodity value doesn't support it. Um, and I think really probably what's going to, what's going to drive, you know, what tools we have available to us and how well they can be utilized by as many people as possible is, you know, there's, there's, there's a certain level of economics that are, you know, kind of out of my hands and out of the hands of a lot of people. Um, again, you know, just kind of how, you know, dependent these systems are on factors, you know, from, from outside of them. We scientists could probably design a suite of tools to get, you know, so many weeds, you know, really, really well. It's just, you know, it's not an economically viable option for, for the environment that we're in. Yeah. Back to that. I forget we call it like the electric weed controller thing. I've never heard of that before. And I think that's crazy that they had that idea as early as the 1800s. I mean, it makes sense if there was electricity and weeds. But yeah, I always think of things like that in terms of like, I don't know, animal control, like mosquitoes or something, those like mosquito zapper things. So that's super cool to hear about. Yeah, no. Robot. Yeah. It, you know what? I, I think ag technology is, you know, um, for, for weed control is, is, you know, we're at an exciting place. Um, you know, in the seventies and eighties, we saw a lot of herbicides being released, you know, it was kind of this kind of chemical era, you know, and every couple of years, new herbicides, new herbicides, new herbicides, you know, new modes of action. And now we, we've really plateaued, you know, we haven't, you know, it's, we're not getting, you know, the, the, those, those new active ingredients at the, at the rate that we once were. So, you know, we have to be very good stewards of the products that we, we do have, you know, particularly with resistance, we have to use them judiciously, you know, yes, we have resistance to a lot of these tools, but they do still have a place for the control of many weeds. So we've got to protect them. So they're there to control those weeds. But we also have to be like very mindful that this is our time, you know, to, to really be thinking about these alternate, you know, tools and these alternate strategies for control. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a lot out there. Um, like I said, the electric weeders, there's robotic weeders, you know, there's so many people doing work on cover crops and, you know, interceding. Uh, there's so much work that's being done on, you know, this, this really starting to be done to like, well, how can we use the crops themselves, you know, to, um, to suppress weeds? It's one of our integrated weed management strategies, you know, pick a, a very vigorous crop, a very competitive crop, 
Well, you know, now we're looking at our, do, do certain crops or certain cultivars or varieties within the crop, do they have architecture that makes them more competitive, you know, um, relative to the weeds than, you know, another variety. So, you know, even like high throughput phenotyping of comparing, you know, these different crop varieties with these different weeds and, 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 and really detailing how they grow and how fast they grow, you know, will help us maybe, you know, just, you know, select those plants that we want to be more competitive. You know, weed control is not going to be, you know, it's not, it's not a silver bullet. It's maybe I'm wrong about it, but I see it as like death by a thousand cuts. You know, we have to be mindful of, we can pick the timing of when we, maybe we can pick the timing of when we plant better. Maybe we can pick our variety better. Maybe we can do this. Maybe we can do this. Maybe we can put this crop in a rotation. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be truly and honestly, this kind of very, very integrated strategy, I think, going forward. And, and I think we're going to see novel technology, um, there's a lot of companies out there I'm paying attention to because they've got exciting stuff. And yeah, and I'm, I'm looking forward to when they can, a lot of them are in Europe and a lot of them are in California and I'm looking forward to when they start making their way, you know, to the East coast. I find that incredibly fascinating. I think that I am guilty as charged for thinking that it was a lot more simple than it is. Uh, but a question I think I've always had is, so there's weeds, right? And we're calling them weeds because they're pests in the particular situation. But are any of them even at all remotely beneficial? You know, is it sometimes good to have this kind of weed, but not another kind of weed? Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of discussion about that. And, you know, that that certain, certain weed species could... Um, you know, be very supportive of pollinators, you know, that we, we know that that certain, you know, bees like to, to go to these weed species. And so they could be, uh, you know, uh, supportive for that. Or, or some weed species could be very supportive of arthropods um, that are predators on, you know, uh, pest insects. So there, there's, there's definite benefits. Gosh, you know, a lot of our weed species are, you know, you know, a good chunk of them came here because, you know, you could eat them. Right. And, and, you know, might've been brought here as, as a, as a food source. And, and you know, there's a, uh, not pulmonary, sorry, which was used as a, a food source by indigenous peoples in the, the North American Southwest, but um, garlic mustard, which is now, you know, this, this, this horrible weed that's in our, our Eastern forests you know, is, is, is a pot herb and, and, you know, and, you know, is, is technically edible. We're not, we're not necessarily eating it, but it had a use as, you know, as, as, as food where it came from. So there are, there are definitely, uh, there is that focus on, um, you know, what, what, what ecosystem services certain weed species could be providing, you know, not, not necessarily all of them, but like I said, you know, well, maybe we can let these, these certain weeds go in our, um, our orchards later in the season, because it'll be good for, you know, uh, natural pollinators or not. Um, you know, I had one grower who was like, 
gosh, I have a lot of purslane and, and can I just sell, because purslane's edible, you know, and it's like, can I just sell this purslane, you know, in addition to my basil, you know, and, uh, you know, make a crop out of it. So that is fascinating. And so taking a step back, what originally led you to the field of weed science? I feel like I don't know a lot of young people who are specifically looking to get into that field. So yeah, how did you get interested? All the hip and cool people want to be in weed science. <laughs> no, um, I believe you. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, so actually, wanna, so I, I realized in college I wanted to work with plants. And, and after graduating, spent some time in the horticulture industry in southeastern Pennsylvania, at Longwood Gardens, Tyler Arboretum, a few other botanic gardens in the area. And, uh, you know, was getting my, my pesticide applicator, you know, renewal credits and was listening to a talk. Uh, that a uh, Penn State professor was giving on dandelions. And it was just, you know, wickedly cool, you know? And I was like, man, I could do that. And so I went to grad school, but actually I ended up going to grad school for plant pathology. Um, uh, but when I, when I started my PhD, that was kind of when I realized, I was like, yeah, you know what? I really like those weeds better. You know, I, I enjoyed my time in plant path. I learned a lot, but Weeds, weeds were just more exciting to me. And I think maybe it's just because of the potential that they possess, you know, there's, you know, there's, they're just so dynamic and they're so interesting. And so I, you know, came, you know, it was that, that time in my PhD when I just realized plant path wasn't for me, but, but weed science kind of was. And um, I, you know, talked to my who the man who became my advisor, John Cardina, and said, would you take me on? And he said, sure. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love, I, I honestly love weeds. I, I love working with them. I love learning about them. And, um, you know, even in my off time, I'm like, Ooh, I got to take a picture of that weed. You know, my husband and I will take our dog for the walk. And I'm like, Oh God, wait, I got to get a picture of that. And in fact, my husband has a running set of pictures where we're like, in front of the Colosseum in Rome and I'm taking a picture of a dandelion or we're in Patagonia, South America, and I'm taking a picture of a plantain with, you know, Doris del Paine in the background or, you know, Hey, it's the Adriatic sea, but Lynn is not looking at it. (laughs) A picture of a weed. And we actually have a disturbing number of vacation pictures like that. (laughs) The weed in the foreground and your like family picture in the background. (laughs) It's in the Christmas card photo, the weeds. (laughs) To say it, it's 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 um it's a little embarrassing actually. Yeah, we have a it's everywhere we I'm probably taking a picture of weeds, and that's probably why there's like six thousand of them on my phone, and I'm really gonna have to organize these somehow very soon. (laughs) Well, hey, you know, that's what we need is the people passionate about their job. And like, yeah, I think that's awesome. And just after talking to you today, I'm like, damn, like, this is really interesting. And I want to read more about weeds, too. I can totally see why you're into it. Well, let me express my admiration, though, for entomologists. I don't know how y'all do what you're doing. Like, everything looks alike to me, you know, it's all a bug. I, I, you know, I just like, you know, where, you know, you think, uh, Oh, I always thought of weed science as being very simple. You know, for me, I'm, I'm more just, I'm glad that's not me because wow, I, 
I could not tell any of these apart. Oh my goodness. You know, and, um, you know, bless you for doing that because somebody has to, because insects are like a serious, serious, serious problem in, in our environment our cropping systems too. And, and I am definitely not capable of doing that. I think that's why we all have to work together. I think that's why, you know, when I first got into this game, you know, there's always a pathologist and a weed scientist with the entomologist uh, trying to holistically approach this stuff. Um, So you talked a little bit about your transition into weed science. Was there any, like, what would you say was your most valuable research experience when you were a student? Wow. You know, um, most valuable research experience. You know what? It's not a research experience. It's a, it's a person, person, personal experience and personnel experience. When I first started in John's lab, I kept calling him Dr. Cardina, Dr. Cardina, Dr. Cardina, Dr. Cardina. And he finally stopped me and he said, man, you have got to call me John. And I was just like looking at him like, I'm not, this, this doesn't seem right. And he's like, I am, I am training my colleague. You know, you and I are going to work together. And yes, I'm your advisor right now. But what I'm hoping is after you graduate, we are going to work together in the future. And I want you as a colleague. And I, you know, it was it was this point in time. And I, I realized maybe this dynamic doesn't work for every graduate student and every advisor. But I felt wanted and I felt accepted and I felt like I had a place in this discipline, you know, particularly because agricultural disciplines tend to be, you know, historically they've been very male dominated, you know, that's, that, that's, that's a fact. And, you know, at that time in the early two thousands, I was, you know, not seeing necessarily a lot of women in my, you know, in, in my plant pathological discipline or in, 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 you know, in horticulture where I was, you know, I, I still had a lot of male coworkers, um, and, and John just, it just made me feel like, yeah, you know what, I, I belong here. This person believes in me. This person, you know, sees me as a valued partner. And, you know, it was, it was a, just a confluence of events, I think, that I just, that has always stuck with me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in the right, the right space and the right place. That goes so far. And I've had similar experiences and um, talking to the other grad students in our department too. Yeah, it, like it means a lot whenever you realize that you're someone's colleague instead of just the student. So besides for taking pictures of weeds, what do you like to do when you're not working, Lynn? Well, I like to take pictures of weeds. <laughs> yeah. Boy, that, that really does seem to dominate some of my... <laughs> Some of my That's favorite. fun too. <laughs> you know, um, so I used to be really, 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 really into running and then got injured. And it's, it, how about this? It's a slow crawl back to getting to that, to that place. I, I do enjoy running and now I'm feeling ashamed that I'm, I'm not doing more of it. Um, uh, you know, my husband and I just, just moved. So we're, you know, we're, I think we're, as much as we can, given a global pandemic, enjoying learning about uh, our new, our new environment, where we are, what we can do, what we can go see. 
Uh, my husband's doing a lot of work on the house, so I enjoy keeping out of his way while, while he's, you know, thinking and figuring out um, how to remodel our bathroom. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, my husband and I, we've, we've done a lot of traveling together, and we really enjoy that when we can, and we are looking forward to a time when, when we can resume that. Yeah, it's hard for everyone right now. You know, your normal activities just aren't there. And yeah, you got to do what you can do around the house. <laughs> Our dog is getting a lot more walks than, than she used to, you know. Well, yeah. Travel, but we can take Shasta around the block a few times. You know, that's that's been fun. Oh, what type of dog is she? She is a, a lovely mutt. Um, uh, she's got a lot of... Um, some sort of sheepdog in her. Um, but, you know, she's, she's not a herding dog. She's, she's more, she, she's very keen on defending the house from deer and squirrels and bunny rabbits and falling leaves and dapple sunshine and, you know, everything that catches the corner of her eye. Well, it sounds like you live in a beautiful place with all that's going on in your backyard. <laughs> we, we do. And, um, yes, I will, I will, uh, put a shout out to the Finger Lakes region of New York. It is absolutely gorgeous here. It is beautiful. And we are going into fall and I am thrilled before, you know, just waiting for the color change on the leaves. I am so fortunate to be able to live here in Geneva, New York. I'm thrilled. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's something we don't have here in Southern California. Um, I've, I've never been in the Northeast during fall and it just sounds amazing. It is. It is. I will. You cannot beat fall in, in the Northeastern U S um, it's a, it can be a riot of color. Um, although I am going to say when the couple of the super blooms that I've had the chance to experience in California with the wildflowers. You know, yeah, that's true. That's like one thing we have going for us, <laughs> but it's only sometimes, only some years. You know what? I, 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 you know, we, my husband and I have been very um, able to find, you know, beauty everywhere we've been and, you know, things to do and, and things to see and experience, whether it's fall colors here, uh, you know, the, the Sierra mountains in California or, you know, uh, in, in enjoying, you know, the, you know, the, the, the new kind of the, like the swampy environments that we'd never been exposed to when we were living in Georgia, you know, and, and seeing like alligators for the first time, you know, like there's always, there's something exciting everywhere. Yeah. That's a really good point. Like everywhere is beautiful and you just have to find the beauty in it. It's so easy to pick out the horrible things about wherever you live because nowhere is perfect, but there's a lot of beauty all across the world. I think, you know, the one thing for me is working in agriculture and having had the opportunity to work at a lot of research stations like Cornell's research station here in, in Geneva, um, just being a lot closer to, uh, you know, natural areas and, and being outside of, you know, just, just having that ability to, to, to get out more easily. But then at the same time, if we want to go see, experience something, you know, that's more urban, having that opportunity to, I feel like uh, we've just, we've been fortunate to live, you know, at, you know, at this intersection of, you know, environments that we can choose what we want to do. So nice. So we don't want to take too much of your time, Lynn, but sort of one last question that we have is, 
What advice do you have for students looking to get into agriculture research or extension work or anything in that realm? So, you know, I, I, what I'm probably going to do is I'm probably going to speak to maybe a student who, um, who has never thought about agriculture or, you know, weed science or plant pathology or entomology before. I don't come from an agricultural background. My parents are teachers. I grew up in a little coal mining town in Pennsylvania. You know, um, not everyone who goes into ag is a farm kid, you know, and there's nothing wrong wrong with that. I think it's great to have that experience. You know, I discovered I, I had a love for weeds and agriculture very late in my life. But, you know, maybe maybe you out there, if you're, you know, maybe growing up in a, in a city and you're not, you're not, um, you know, in a, in a rural community where, where ag is all around you, you know, it, that doesn't mean that the agricultural, you know, research and extension and experience isn't for you. It, it very much may be. And, you know, just if, if, if you're interested, think about it and, and, and don't hesitate to ask. And, you know, there, there is a place for you here. If you're really excited about the science and if you're really interested in it, you know, that's, that's really counts for so much. You know, my advisors, my P master's advisor and my PhD advisor took a, you know, took a chance on me. I didn't have that background and experience, but, but they liked, you know, what they saw in me and the discussions that we had. And I, I think, you know, if, if you want to do it and you want to, you know, be a part of it and you want to experience it, look into it. You, you know, that's, uh, ag is for everyone and, your, your background experiences and, and, you know, life history and, 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 you know, that also, you know, has, has value to, to the ag community and diversifying the ag community as, as well. You know, you, you bring a different way of looking at agriculture and weed science and whatnot. And, you know, we, we need that. We need as many different, you know, voices to be heard. And, you know, we need as many different experiences to, you know, kind of um, influence, you know, where we go as, as a discipline. So I think, I think that's what I'm going to say, you know, shoot your shot, you know, go, go for it. You know, don't, don't think that it's not for you. Yeah. That means a lot to me to hear that because I feel that too. That's, I very much fall into that camp where I wasn't a farm kid. I didn't even really know anything about agriculture. Um, <laughs> Madison literally grew up in Portland. So uh, yeah, definitely a city gal. I grew up like, yeah, in the city there. And it was after I started my PhD at UC Riverside because UC Riverside is so centered around ag. Um, in many ways. And I was like, whoa, this is cool. And yeah, but it ha it is sort of intimidating, um, I felt, to get into it, feeling like I'm someone who doesn't have a background in it. Yeah, it just seems like there's all the baseline knowledge that you have to have in order to do anything in the agricultural world. It can be intimidating. So I really appreciate you saying that. And yeah, I think that a lot of our listeners will definitely resonate with it as well. 
You know what? I think um, the, the the interesting thing, you know, you talk about baseline knowledge, and yeah, sir, there there is there is that too. But you know, the thing to remember is like there's always more knowledge, right? That's that's the nature of research is there's always more knowledge. It's always coming. It's it's changing what we know, you know, or what we think we know. You know, there it's you know this is it's nothing is going to be static. So yeah, you're thinking, well, I don't have this experience and I don't know this or this or this. Well, you know, pr pretty soon that th some of that knowledge is going to be changed too, you know, how, you know, how we think about things or, you know, how we're going to manage something. It's, 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 it's ever increasing. And I, I think that's really the beauty of science is, you know, if, if you just rest on you know, what you learned in the past and, and you don't grow with the discipline and you don't grow with the science, then, you know, you're, you're not being a very good scientist and you're not being a very good advocate for your, your discipline. And, and you're not being, you know, a very good, you know, very good with your outreach and your education and, and all of that. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of moving along with the, the wave, right? And, and absorbing what you can. And, uh, you know, I think, I think uh, truly and honestly, passion takes you a long way. Because like I said, you will, you will fall in love with something and then you'll have 6,000 pictures of it on your phone. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, very few, you know, vacation memories except for the Swede in this park. <laughs> We know I, I live vacations. Also, uh, you know, students shouldn't worry about that kind of authenticity. The whole point of you know being a student is making your own authenticity, right? I mean, that's kind of what a PhD is. You're you're out there exploring, and then you find your niche. So it comes to you. You know, it's not like you have to know going in. It's something that develops. Something that you you find your way. You know, absolutely. And, um, you know, also to speak to that, um, you, you might also find your way multiple times while even doing that degree. You know, I'm going to tell you my PhD started on one project and that didn't work out. And then it went to another project and that didn't work out. And then it finally settled on another project and it ended up having actually a lot of projects. And, you know, they were all very different from each other. Uh, and, you know, that was actually a great learning experience too, because I wouldn't have wouldn't have picked up certain sets of skills, you know, if I hadn't tried something and said, okay, well, this isn't going to work quite like this and, you know, adapting and, and changing. So um, even, even, even your PhD program or your master's program is going to be fluid, you know, it's, it's going to change and you're going to change. And, you know, I, I think uh, that, that flexibility and, and is, is, is a great thing too. Mm -hmm. It really means a lot to have conversations like this too with people because you're, the university and the department and the program you're in, they give the opposite message that you need to come in like this is the path that you follow to get to your degree. You do ABC in this timeline and then you get it. And no one talks about that sort of, you have to be flexible, like it's not going to be a straight path. It's okay to explore multiple things. And like you said, sort of find your way over and over again in different ways. You know, I was just talking to a graduate student here at Cornell. Um, and, and, you know, I'm sure this will get me in trouble with any number of other faculty members. But, and, you know, 
you have to reach certain milestones, obviously, as you progress along a degree. You have to turn these in at this time. You have to have a thesis. You have to have your, your exams and da, 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 da. The ultimate end result, though, is you as a person and you as a scientist. You are the culmination of your degree. And, and yes, these, these papers that you get and these tests that you take, you know, they're, they're needed, but I think, you know, building the person, you know, who is, you know, thoughtful and introspective and excited, you know, I think that's, what's crucial is, is not, not forgetting the person, you know, in the process and, and not, you know, not, not simply chalking it up to, you know, the lines that they get on their, their CV that starts growing. I mean, I, I really, like I said, I felt John took that approach with me. You know, he wanted me as the, the, the person to develop. And yes. He wanted all those other tools or all those other, those other factors too, but don't, don't lose sight of the, the human being, which is the most important outcome of, of the whole process. That's, that's my opinion. And like I said, maybe that'll get me in trouble, but I'm going to stick with it. I don't think so. I really appreciate it. And I'm happy for Cornell, but I also wish you were here too, you know, like, yeah, you seem like a really great advisor and your science well, is very exciting. Well, I'm, I'm trying, you know, that's, that's, a, <laughs> well, that's clear. That's all all of us can do is try. Mm -hmm, You know, mm -hmm. I will make mistakes in this process. Um, We all will. Um, I just want to learn from my mistakes. That's all. And, and come better, you know, tomorrow. That's all we can do at the end of the day. But I want to thank you both very much for having me on. Thank you. Yeah. No, this has been really, really inspiring and exciting to talk to you today. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Bench, a production from SciComm at UCR. This podcast is supported by Science for Citrus Health and the UC Riverside Graduate Student Association. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SciComm UCR.